couldn't tell what I felt I was unrecognizable to myself Saw my reflection in the window and didn't know my own face Oh brother, are you gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia? Hi, my name is Marie White and I'd like to welcome you to the White Bikini. Today is Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. And joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? I'm doing great, Marie. It's good to be with you once again. Are you glad that winter's here? I <laughs> yeah, it kind of barreled in on us. Uh, you know, the remnants of Hurricane Ian um, definitely has made things a lot chillier in the Delaware Valley. I can't remember October ever being this cold. This should still be Indian summer. Agreed. Well, tomorrow is Wednesday, and from what I can see, tomorrow should be a little bit warmer. So hopefully it's part of a warming trend and better weather will be around the corner. Today, I would like to discuss the shooting crisis in Philadelphia. I've been aware of it, as I'm sure you have been, but I felt that the last week shooting at Roxborough High School really caught my attention. I'd agree. I think, you know, this has been an issue, especially with the pandemic, where people are focused more on what's going on in our communities and what's going on in our homes. To a certain extent, I don't know necessarily think it's a brand new phenomenon. I think it's increased in intensity. Would you agree with that? I think it increased with intensity and the first two years of the pandemic, now that we're almost, I'm jumping ahead a little, but going into the third, I think mostly everyone was kind of focused on not getting sick. Yes. And I think that was rightfully so. I mean, it's a matter of triaging the situation. You know, you have a stab, uh, stabbing patient, a gunshot patient, and someone who, you know, broke their ankle. You're probably going to go with the guy who was shot by a gun first. And I think that's what we did. I think we saw COVID coming. We experienced what COVID was doing in our communities, in the hospitals and reprioritize COVID. But in that process, the unintended consequences were that we exposed the rotten underbelly of a dysfunctioning society, a dysfunctioning Philadelphia. And I guess, and this might really be a second part of the podcast. Today, I want to focus on who the players are in Philadelphia that people are paying good tax money to, to kind of address this issue. And I don't know if this is a gun crisis, a mental health crisis, an economic crisis, or all of the above. I'm inclined to go with all of the above. I think whether it's individual shootings or mass shootings, we try to discern particular features. But what seems to be a refrain in all the tragedies is that it is a melange, it's a mix of some very unfortunate circumstances. And I think uh, one without the other, it doesn't form. But all the forces that are necessary to sustain the shootings and the death, they're ever present in Philadelphia and throughout most of America's cities and suburbs. And let's be honest, this is an African-American problem. Yes, which, um, you know, if we go back to the crack epidemic of the 1980s and early 1990s, it means that nobody cares. It wasn't until there was an opioid epidemic in the United States that there was an awareness, there's consciousness. Wow, there are people, middle-class white people who are suffering, so we need to do something about it. So until the shootings 
um, start occurring at the same rates in suburban white America as it is in black urban America and Hispanic urban America, then nothing will get done, you know, and that's the long and short of it. But I think we can still tease out perhaps some useful details that we can share with some of our listeners and maybe gain, gain some understanding for ourselves. Just a couple quick facts. Philadelphia has had 397 homicides this year. Police have estimated they've picked up over 22,000 bullets this year so far. Every 40 hours, a child is shot in Philadelphia. Philadelphia has almost 500,000 residents living below the poverty line. Philadelphia's poverty is that 23.1% is double the United States average. What happened to the city of brotherly love? Neglect, that's the short answer. These things don't happen overnight. I think there is an erosion of the economic foundations that sustained the African-American community that didn't have access to the best education, didn't have access to all the resources that people, white people, even wealthier African-Americans could gain in more upscale parts of the city as well as in the suburbs. And so when you have the industrial base of a city, of a nation eroded, then you have this economic black hole that sucks in everyone. And I think that's part of our understanding. And I, that, that is my impression of how we got here. That is just one element of it though. I agree. And I have nothing else to add because that's a perfect description. Well, I, I think there's there, there are other elements to it. You know, I'm someone who is very progressive, very liberal in my values. But one of the things that I think as a black man that we have to deal with within the African-American community is understanding that some of the consequences of the 1960s and LBJ's Great Society, namely the welfare program, have had some unintended consequences in that you have generations of African-American women and men who see welfare as a as an entitlement in the same way, you know, 60 year old white people see Medicare or Medicaid as an entitlement. And part of the problem with that is that it sets up cycles of people just getting enough to live and that's all they do they get enough to live they get enough to sustain themselves but they never build up the kind of equity that we see in the suburbs and we see in white community and there's a kind of despair i suppose that comes from that and, and what i mean to just to expound on that a bit if you look at societies where people have a lot to lose they tend not to engage in self-destructive behavior if you have a you know 5000 square foot home mini mansion in westchester or in penwin or in gladwin odds are you are not going to engage in random shootings and you're going to have the resources to put your kids in an environment where that is less than likely to occur. On the main line, your kid is more likely to take your gun and shoot himself by accident or as uh, or in suicide than they are to take your gun and go shoot a, another teenager because that teenager posted something on Instagram that was an insult. What are your thoughts? I guess what we call white people problems. <laughs> yes, and, and, and that problem is largely due to um, an economic reality that doesn't exist in black America, in urban black America, in poor urban black America. I, I think 
the once I think what we hope to do with this podcast is tease out some of the factors that you know to address the main thesis of what we're discussing you know the rampant violence especially among black and brown kids in a city but you know you're you're talking about a disparity that has its roots roots excuse me in 400 years of history so this is not something that's going to be solved quickly you know i think with the pandemic with the economic recession of you know the 2010s what was a 10 to 1 wealth gap between white and black america is now a 20 to 1 wealth gap or perhaps even greater, according to the, some of the latest statistics, where um, for every dollar that a white family has, the black family um, owns the equivalent of a nickel. That's that's huge. And there are many consequences to having such limited economic resources. When the shooting in Roxborough High School happened, I've been watching the news. I do stay on top of the shootings, understanding how often they're happening. But it made me pause for a minute. And I think I'd like to start with what I consider the three key people in Philadelphia who have a hand in correcting, controlling, whatever word would be appropriate. And this probably will be a part two because I really, I wanted to understand who they are and what's happening. I have a couple questions for you. Can you name the, the mayor of Philadelphia? Mayor Kenny. Jim Kenny was born on August 7th, 1958 in the Whitman section of South Philadelphia. His father was a fighter, firefighter and his mother was a homemaker. He graduated from St. Joe's Prep in 1976 and in 1980 received a political science bachelor's degree from LaSalle University. He was the first person in his family to graduate from college. So the mayor of Philadelphia is what I'm going to call a typical baby boomer. He's He has not lived far from the area. All of his schooling was in the area. So he does have a sense of the history of the city and what led us from A to Z. But I don't really know much past that in terms of what they are doing. Do you have anything to add? I don't think you do. I prefer to give people the benefit of the doubt that they actually come in with the best of intentions, but the problem is so big and the budgets are so limited and everybody wants a slice of the pie. The police want more money and I think they deserve it. The Department of Education needs more money and they absolutely deserve it. Social services needs more money, more resources, and they need it. In some regards, the problem is a money problem, but in other regards, it's it's basically a money pit. Some of these problems are essentially money pits. And they're no, go ahead. No, go on, I'm sorry. No, I was basically gonna say they're money pits because we throw money at the problem, but we don't actually hold anyone accountable. I don't necessarily think they're, they're very clear metrics. People that are more um, directly involved in the process can address this. I think sometimes, and I think after a while, the weight of the problem is so overwhelming that people get into these positions, they get their 250, 300, $400,000 a year salaries, and they're like, right, I'm cool, because they know they can't solve the problem. And so there is this lack of urgency. There is this sense of uh, resignation that despite their best of, the best intentions, 
And even if they had all the money in the world, I don't I don't think some of these problems can be solved in the term of one Philadelphia mayor, whomever that person is. So and, go ahead. No, go on. No, please. I, I, I've been speaking for a while. And also throw a pandemic on top of yes. that. And it's a game changer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we just threw, you know, we just threw a grenade <clears throat> into the fire with COVID. Black Lives Matter. It's just been a tidal wave that I don't believe we're going to get out of. No, I, I honestly, two years, I'm thinking these are generational issues. We're talking 20, 30 year transformations, if anything at all, uh, in the in the way that. So I think there's an analogy to this, and I don't I don't want to cast this entire conversation as uh, dark and pessimistic, but I, I look at New York. Um, this is before I got to the United States, but New York of the 1970s, early 1980s, uh, lower Manhattan was a dingy, scary place. And then by the 1990s, with some very unconstitutional um, policies enacted by, you know, Giuliani and, you know, some of the subsequent mayors of uh, New York, Manhattan was a safe, clean, I dare I say, family friendly place. But we talk, we're talking about 20 years of work. And I think we have to be humble to that fact that we're just starting to identify some of these problems now and perhaps we're starting to um, structure budgets to address them i think people who work in the city of philadelphia in education or in social services would laugh at me right now if i say this but just for the sake of argument we're aligning the budgets to start to address some of these needs but the work itself it's going to take decades who is the district attorney of philadelphia krasner is that right larry krasner I believe that when you're the district attorney of Philadelphia, you have to be born in Pennsylvania. Is that old fashioned? Well, it, it might be, uh, but you know, if he was born in New Jersey, but spent the last 30 years of his life living in Philadelphia, I, you know, I don't necessarily see that's a huge problem, but I want to hear your perspective. No, he, he does have a long history, but he was born in St. Louis in 1961. So Mayor Kenny's that generation that really was more has that 50s mentality. Larry Krasner was born in St. Louis. His father was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants and an author of crime fiction. His mother, Juanita Frazier, was an evangelical Christian. His family moved to the Philadelphia area while he was still attending public school. He graduated from Conestoga High School in 1979. He graduated from Chicago, University of Chicago and Stanford Law. I knew nothing about him really until I dug a little deeper. He returned to Philadelphia to work for the Federal Public Defender's Office. He opened his own law firm in 1993 and worked as a criminal defense lawyer in Philadelphia for 30 years, specializing in civil rights and frequently representing protesters pro bono. His representation of Black Lives Matter and Occupy Philadelphia has led many to call him an anti-establishment candidate during his 2017 primary campaign for the Democratic Convention. He campaigned against existing policies that has resulted in disproportionately high numbers of minority males being jailed and proposed other reforms in criminal justice. I don't hear a lot of positive things about Larry Krasner, but I have pretty much been checked out since about 2018, 2019. I used to watch Philadelphia very closely, and it concerns me that I don't have my 
household anything anymore. Well, as we alluded to at the top of the show, I think COVID definitely sucked up all the oxygen in the room. So the idea of what's the district attorney doing in the city seems um, insignificant when people have died from a communicable disease. And, and I think that's reasonable. I think it's reasonable to put your attention on the thing that's killing a thousand people a day in your city. Last, who was the uh, chief of police? Commissioner Outlaw, right? Do you know her first name? Uh, Danielle Outlaw. Correct. Danielle began her law enforcement career with the Oakland Police Department in California. She rose to the ranks to deputy chief and during her time in Oakland, she thought that the police should change their communication styles, which I agree with. Agreed, 100%. I think a lot of the problems that, and I, and I know you're perhaps of a different perspective, a lot of the problems that happens between the police and the community, especially with the black community, is the way white police officers in particular speak to black citizens in these neighborhoods. It's so disrespectful, it's so condescending, damn near racist in some instances, and absolutely racist in other instances. It leads to, it's one of those things that can be fixed but it becomes a pissing contest between the guy in the badge and the guy on the block, and nobody wants to yield. And at the end of the day, you know, the way the law and the system is structured, the guy with the badge almost always wins. And that is one of the reasons why there's so much tension between police and the community. And it has to do with what um, Commissioner Outlaw pointed. And I completely agree with that. And if if police approach the citizens the way um, that they would expect to be approached, and listen, they're, they're jerks out there. They're jerks in the city. They're people that are mentally ill. And I'm not speaking dis disparagingly of people who struggle with mental illness. I'm one of those. Um, but I think when you put on the badge, you there's an expectation that you're just going to eat a little bit more dirt. Um, it, just, it just comes with the territory. And I think what's happening in the city is that you have generations of older police officers, especially older white police officers who are, have this culture of this like overseer relationship with the black community and they feel entitled to speak to black residents, be they teenagers or be they senior citizens as less than human. And that's a major problem. It's a huge reason why there's such a rift in the trust gap that exists between the, the block and the cop. Danielle Outlaw suggested that women's so-called soft skills could help in communicating with other communities and avoid potentially dangerous situations, which I think is true. And I think a lot of these these men in the African-American communities don't have good relationships with their father. So I think men can trigger men easily. 100%. Everything is a pissing contest. When you have little going in your life, so this is this is a little bit of a meme that's on social media between what takes place in white community and what takes place in the black community. You have these impoverished neighborhoods where all these young men have is their ego and they don't have much going for them. You know, the white guy, you, you know, bark an insult at him. You know, he might give you the finger, shrug his shoulder and walk away, you know? And I think what's happening in black America is that someone gets insulted and they grab a gun and shoot. Because this is what this is what this conversation is ultimately about is to identify some of these problems. And I think in part, it's based on economics. When you have everything to lose, you're not going to risk doing something stupid. You know, you don't necessarily you don't see Elon Musk walking around shooting guns because 
the guy's a billionaire. He has a lot to lose. And I think a lot of this comes back to economics and education, of course, but I think that's part of it. I think, you know, you have a situation in inner city America where you have young people, young men, especially, who don't feel like life is that valuable and whatever value their life has is attached to their ego. So if you insult someone, that's worthy of you losing your life. On December 30th, 2019, the city of Philadelphia and Mayor Kenny announced the appointment of Danielle Outlaw as the new commissioner of the Philadelphia Police Department beginning February 10th, 2020, which is literally a month before the pandemic. Outlaw is a member of an organization called The Lynx. Do you know what that is? I don't know. Could you tell me what that is, please? The Lynx is an uh, American invitation-only social and service organization of prominent Black women in the United States. Very interesting. Founded in 1946, it is the largest nationwide organization of Black women in the USA. Members include prominent women, including Kamala Kamala Harris, Marion Wright Edelman, and the late Betty Shabazz. As of 2021, there were 16,000 members in nearly 300 chapters. The organization, which was founded in Philadelphia, how do we not know about it? But since that, 2020, it's been headquartered in Washington, D.C. I knew nothing about this. No, stunned and stumped. Uh, no, knew nothing about this. So when I was doing my research, I really began to think, I still believe we're in the pandemic. I do think people are not getting as sick, thank God, because of vaccinations, because of masking. And I'd like to take a minute and I want to kind of become a little more civic-minded. So my goal with you today is to look in to see what's happening in Philadelphia. And I really wanted to start today with understanding the three key people who can hopefully make some changes, not overnight, would kind of get us back into the right direction. And I really didn't know much about any of these three people, which upsets me. Well, I mean, I think sometimes when you have a difficult problem and you don't know where exactly to start, you start with a general framework, um, you know, and I I think identifying the problems is uh, perhaps step one. Step two is brainstorming solutions. Step three is the budget. Step four is implementation and monitoring, meaning are there metrics in place to know whether or not we're succeeding? And if we're not succeeding, are there efforts or steps to do mid-course corrections? And really, at the end of the day, I also believe it comes down to with everything in life, it's boots on the ground. It is. You know, I worked briefly in public education in the city for about a year. You know, it was about 20 But one of the things I've come to recognize is that the relationship between poverty and crime, um, one of the best places to break that link, to break that cycle, is with education. So the education of a new generation. But there are also some unintended consequences of taking that approach. And potentially what you're doing by that is you're saying implicitly, you're just going to write off a generation of older people in order to invest in a generation of younger people. And uh, so these are some of the ugly questions that I think as a society, as a city, that perhaps we need to come to terms with. Almost in the way we just kind of wrote off a generation of segregationists. 
you know, as a society, we decided that we we're going to put Jim Crow behind us and we were going to try to do better. But there's some people that were just completely wedded to a wrong-headed idea. And I think in terms of breaking the cycle of violence and poverty in the city, I think we may need to take that approach. I don't think any mayor or any leader in the city of Philadelphia would ever say that, but we're just two people on a podcast. And I think whatever you do, there will be unintended consequences. And I'd rather just be as brutally honest as we can about these things than give political speeches. And I think that for the follow-up episode, I'd like to go into, there are people that have boots on the ground that are in the neighborhoods fighting to do the right thing. And I'd like to go over on the positive aspect of all the things that are happening. This is just, I'd like to do a three-part episode of this. Where are we? Who are the key players? But who are the people that are really getting their hands dirty in these communities and really fighting the good fight? I would love that. I think we all want this to work out because we have no option. It's almost like uh, taking care of the environment. We, we, we have to get it right because we don't have a plan B. You know, if the city of Philadelphia collapses under its own mismanagement or under a, 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 tide, um, a tidal wave of dysfunction, crime and violence, there is no plan B. So we have to get this right. And it makes me sad because I think of all my memories, you know, since the mid eighties or of a good Philadelphia, but now I'm wondering, was that just through my white privilege? Uh, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. You're, we're all a function of our backgrounds and our experiences. You know, you grew up, you're fortunate to grow up in an, in an environment where 14 year old kids weren't shooting each other regularly. And I think you should feel good about that. You shouldn't feel guilty about that or feel a unique sense of privilege. I mean, it, it might be a an accurate description, but I think it, sh it shouldn't be a label that we hang on people because when we do that, we sometimes, we alienate our allies. And I think when we get in these cultural struggles, these battles that involve either politics or money or race, ideological purity comes in and we alienate our allies. And people like you, Marie, are allies to the conditions of urban America, be they for black people, people of Latin heritage, or even for whites. I mean, look at Kensington. So I prefer all hands on deck, every willing participant who wants to be a positive contributor to the cause, I say, step up and get on board. I like you know, that, Nick. Yeah, there's, I mean, I understand there, there needs to be some sort of historical and cultural perspective in terms of how we experience these problems. But I think in this era of people trying to take account of their own history sometimes the people that we need to step up and be your ally you know we don't need you to burden yourself with guilt and shame we just need you to work we, we can are, deal with we can deal with the guilt and shame on a on a different level but right now the city's uh, the city's burning down figuratively and 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 literally and we just need people who care and want to be positive contributors and we all know how we got here now we have to take it and figure out what we're going to do yes, about it. Yes. So I, I think self-reflection, having an understanding of the differences and experiences, you know, between living in a white suburban neighborhood or predominantly African-American neighborhood or predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. Yes, you, you, you come to the table with different experiences. But right now, you know, it's it's triage. We, we can deal with the cultural legacies another time. But I think for right now, 
all hands on deck, you know, let's get the fire out. And I'd like to go back to truly our name, which is the city of brotherly love. Yes, and we've fallen short of that for far too long. Um, this is a city of young, predominantly black men, teenagers, children, killing one another for stupid shit. And, and that's a technical term. Stupid shit is a technical term? It is in my book. <laughs> yes, it, it really is that simple. So, you know, I was fortunate to have um, some experiences in terms of shared experiences from people that work in the Philadelphia school district. And one of the anecdotes that I think I'll relay that I think is relevant to what we're discussing is that one of the reasons why there's so much crime is because kids don't fight anymore. You know, whether you grew up in the suburbs or in the city, before the, the cities and the suburbs, for that matter, were awash in guns, the worst thing that would happen is that your son or your daughter might come home with a bruise because they got in a fight. But what's happening now is that kids don't fight. I'm not advocating for violence in school. But what used to be settled with maybe a shove or some hair pulling is now resolved with a 38 or a Glock. And that is not an exaggeration. Kids don't fight, they shoot. And what happens, it builds up the cycle of escalation where um, John kills Jim and then Jim's cousin comes back for retaliation. And next thing you know, the adults are involved. And then it becomes like the Hatfields and the McCoys. So. For some of our listeners who are not familiar with the dynamic of what's happening in Philadelphia, that's just a simple insight into how this madness started and what's perpetuating it is that you have young kids who insult one another. It can be something as ridiculous like as posting an insult on, on Instagram. Monday morning comes, uh, the poster gets shot, then there are a series of retaliations that goes back and forth between neighborhoods. And next thing you know, there's a drive-by in a neighborhood and some poor little girl gets shot in the head doing her homework because there is just this lack of regard for human life. And it's more than that though, it's it's anger and sadness and frustration that someone you love was killed. And irrespective of the neighborhood you live in, people care about their children, you know? I, I think perhaps the, the difference is that if you live in a, in a more economically advantaged neighborhood, um, you go to court and you get the shooter arrested and put away for life. But in, in these neighborhoods, it's a different ethos. You know, if, if someone shoots your kid, you go and shoot their kid. It's generational trauma. Yes, that's a very, very good way of putting it. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. Please remember to subscribe to The White Bikini on Apple and Spotify. And please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. Thank you for joining us today. Before we go, do we have a sponsor this week? I hate you. I know you do, but who's your sponsor? Have you gotten your hair cut since you came back from your European excursion? Don't tell everybody my business. Have you? No. You need to make sure that you make an appointment at the shops on Market Street. It is Westchester's premier barber shop, providing the freshest cuts and the biggest smiles. Girl Barbers Rule. Don't forget that, Nick. Girl Barbers absolutely rule. 134 East Market Street, Westchester, PA. The website is www.theshopwc.com or their Instagram page. Please follow them is The Shop on Market Street. Thank yes. you for joining us today. Thank you. Those ladies are easy on your wallet and easy on your eyes. Sigh. Let's go. <laughs> Bye. 
Jeremiah Dixon I am a Jody boy Glass of wine with you sir And the ladies I'm enjoy Old Durham and Northumberland Is measured up by my own hand It was my fate from birth To make my mark upon the earth He calls me Charlie Mason Stargazer am I It seems that I was born to chart the evening sky They'd cut me out for baking bread But I had other dreams instead This baker's boy from the West Country Would join the Royal Society We are sailing to Philadelphia A world away from the cold time Sailing to Philadelphia Dixon line.